five, four, three, two, one, zero. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a lift Alcohol in space. That is actually the title of an existing book, written by Chris Carberry, who is also the CEO of Explore Mars. Chris is our guest this week, and we're talking about everything alcohol in space. From the history of alcohol consumption in space, over its effects in microgravity, all the way to what kind of drinks we may produce in space in the future. So in this vein, cheers and enjoy. My name is Raphael Rodkin, and I'm an investor and advisor to space companies. Just as a reminder, this podcast is for informational purposes only and nothing should be taken as investment advice. This podcast is sponsored by Nanoavionics, a satellite manufacturer and mission integrator. Their technologies enable many space companies worldwide to offer services that improve life right here on Earth, such as providing global connectivity, conducting Earth observation or contributing to scientific discoveries. Check them out and also check out my episode with the CEO and co-founder. Sadly, I am not a rocket scientist, but I am an alumnus of the International Space University. ISU offers a number of educational programs about space worldwide. Check them out at isunet.edu. And just some final things before we start the episode about ourselves. If you enjoy the podcast, please leave us a five-star rating on your favorite podcast platform, such as Apple or Spotify. If you want us help, expand our work, you can do so and support us at www.patreon.com forward slash space business podcast. And we'll also put that link in the episode notes. And lastly, you can follow us on Twitter at podcast underscore space. Hey, space enthusiasts, welcome back to another episode. It is one of our non-business episodes. If you glanced at the title, that is pretty clear. It's about alcohol in space. Although, of course, I think that could be quite an interesting business angle to that. And maybe we'll talk about this during this episode as well. But I welcome my guest who is an expert. He has written, literally written a book on the subject, Chris Carberry. Welcome, Chris. Well, thank you. Thanks for having me on. Chris, could you just briefly introduce yourself and, and how you got to write a book on alcohol in space? Well, my day job is being CEO of the US-based nonprofit Explorer Mars. But I was before that, I was executive director of the Mars Society and worked with a lot of other space groups. And during all these events, you know, we'd go to events, go to bars or something after events and sometimes have silly conversations on what would, you know, wine taste like if you manufactured it on Mars or could you brew beer in space, et cetera. And I thought it might be great or kind of cool to write a semi-serious article on the topic. But as the years went by, I realized as I started looking at more and more companies that were investing in space-related alcohol technologies, there was enough out there for an entire book. So that's how I kind of got into it. And I was looking at this, this uh, large number of alcohol companies, as well as the interesting history of drinking in space as well, as well as how it's been dealt with through science fiction. So I, I realized it would probably be a great book and i might as well be the first one that that makes all the sense to me in the world i mean alcohol has been part of human culture for probably many thousands if not tens of thousands of years and we'll talk about the history by the way i felt obligated to have this episode over a drink i know that's unfair to you because uh, it's 10 a.m for you <laughs> myself i'm in europe so it's 4 p.m and so i'm enjoying a nice glass <laughs> well, of <laughs> <laughs> there you well, go. depending on how long we talk we can cheers we can uh, we can switch drinks but did you actually get an answer to some of these, these questions you mentioned like what would wine taste like in space? 
And then I guess that is a segue into my next question right after that, when we talk about history. Well, I'm going to ask you a similar question that I asked for our most recent episode, which was on sex in space. And I asked, well, has there been sex in space? And uh, the answer was like, well, the official line is no. And I'm going to ask you, well, has there been alcohol consumption in space? Well, I can answer all of those, but what do you want me to answer first? Well, why don't, why don't we go straight into the history? Has there been, and actually know the answer, but just for you to elaborate a little bit, has there been alcoholic consumption in space? And what are some <laughs> famous known examples? Yeah, no, there's been drinking in space practically from the beginning of human space flight. At first, people would smuggle it up just as a gag, but pretty early on, people were consuming consuming alcohol. Perhaps the most famous example was actually for religious service. Uh, Buzz Aldrin consumed wine on the surface of the moon as part of a communion prayer for his church. So he brought up a goblet and communion wine and actually consumed it and just said a prayer. Now, he had hoped to make this part of his public statement as he was talking to Earth, you know, his opening statements, but he was told by NASA, you probably should hold off until we're not on the air anymore, because they were very nervous on the reaction. Just a few months earlier, they had received a lot of blowback from an atheist group when um, Apollo 8 had basically recited mm. uh, from the book of Genesis in their um, orbiting around the moon around Christmas that year in 1968. And so they were really worried if, you know, Buzz Aldrin were saying a prayer and drinking on the surface of the moon, what sort of blowback that would have. So he had to say that off the record, but they still have that goblet that was brought up, supplied to him by the Webster Presbyterian Church in near Houston. They still have an annual mass at that church honoring the uh, moon moon communion prayer on the you know back in 1969 but that's interesting it sounds to me from the way you described it that it may have been more the, the nasa concern may have been more about uh, appearing non-sectarian than about necessarily appearing sober well, well even at the time alcohol wasn't officially prohibited in space at the time currently it's prohibited by every country that's going into space some of which more strictly than others, as I will get into. Yeah, they were concerned about what people would think at Buzz or drinking on the surface of the moon, but it probably was more of the religion aspect to it. But over time, later, just a few years later, when they were planning for the Sky Skylab missions, wine was going to be part of the menu because they wanted Skylab to be home away from home. And so they even hired an expert to look at what would be the most stable wine that could go through all the shaking of being launched into space in these extreme environments. And they picked the sherry. But before they launched, it got, you know, it got leaked to the press. And so they got nervous and they canceled the wine from the uh, Skylab missions. But ever since then, pretty much around that time, alcohol has officially been prohibited. But it doesn't mean it's not be happening. Alcohol has been um, smuggled up to ISS and the Mir space station and other places for many years. And primarily to the Russians, they will, you know, slip them in their spacesuits. There's this famous time period when there's a perfect time to put, you know, smuggable, smuggleables, <laughs> you know, in their spacesuits. Back in, you know, when Yuri Gagarin flew, you know, obviously that was a successful mission. The Russians became very superstitious about following the path of Yuri Gagarin before every flight, and they still do. Most famously, Yuri Gagarin on the bus trip over to the launch pad had to relieve himself, had to urinate, and they stopped the bus halfway to the launch pad. And he got out, unzipped his spacesuit, and basically urinated on the back tire of the bus. Now, every mission going off from Russia do that also. They stop, and the crew will get off, unzip their spacesuits, their spacesuits who have already been pressurized um, and sealed up, and urinate or pretend to on the back 
back bus, uh, you know, back wheel of the bus. But it's all to the time people put in certain things they want to smuggle up to ISS, including alcohol. So many, many crews have consumed alcohol, primarily uh, cognac. They consider that's kind of the official sp- drink of space right now. And they don't drink a huge amount, but crews often will have little toasts. When a new crew comes up, they'll have a reception or other times when there's it's been a really intense day. So it's, it's used as a great way to build camaraderie between international crew members, often when there's a lot of tension between the countries. And this is an interesting thing people don't understand how important this role of building up that camaraderie in space is. You know, the international partners that include Russia still are still able to get along in space, even though often the relationships have been pretty rocky here on Earth. So I think alcohol has actually helped in that process. So that, that's very interesting to hear. And by the way, I wasn't aware of the cognac. I mean, that sounds to me, we'll talk about the business part of it. It sounds to me like a company like uh, Honesty from France should be all over it and exploiting it. And, and maybe they have been. But I also wasn't aware of the um, the Skylab history. But then you're saying, OK, it happened on me on International Space Station. So did we ever get some answer to this taste crisis? that you brought up at the beginning that whether alcohol tastes different than, than it does taste on Earth? Well, everything tastes different in space, actually, at least in microgravity. This is one of the big challenges for the alcohol producers interested in, you know, using, build, sending their product up into space because most astronauts feel as though they have a head cold, kind of the fluid shift. And so their taste buds are affected. So they don't taste as well in space. So most astronauts usually like to have a lot of hot sauce up in space to add a little more taste to their food. And so obviously this is going to impact um, alcohol tastes. One of the problems, like for instance, and that's not the only problem. Also for anything carbonated in space, that's a problem as well, as you probably know. Anybody who's looked at a carbonated drink on the surface of Earth in 1G, all the gas bubbles rise to the surface and disperse into the atmosphere. That doesn't happen in space because there's no gravity. It all goes to the center in a ball and starts expanding. And it does that in your stomach as well. And so astronauts that have consumed carbonated beverages have been reported stomach cramps and wet burps, which isn't exactly the sort of reaction most people want their products to have in space. So a lot of companies are looking at this as a beer company currently in Australia, uh, which is a collaboration of a aerospace company and a brewery. Aerospace company is Sabre Astronautics. The beer, the brewery is Four Pines Brewery, who came up with um, Bostock beer, named after Yuri Gagarin's flight. And what they've been trying to do with that is create a beer that was consumable in space. So it had strong enough taste, but also didn't have as much carbonation as at least American beers would have. And so what they picked was a Stout with lower carbonation, kind of like a British beer, actually, and that tested on zero G flights. You know, that's only just a few minutes at a time or a few seconds at a time, but they hope to be able to send it up into space and have people consume beer. There's also a French company, Maison Mom, champagne company, who has been very enthusiastic and have been creating a special champagne bottle and champagne to send up, send up to microgravity because they want to produce, they want to provide the champagne for people going up into space hotels. And they've tested it on multiple zero gravity flights, um, parabolic flights and airplanes. But they're also sending their their um, space champagne bottle up into space on SpaceX with the Axiom 3 flight this fall. So there's a lot of companies looking at this and trying to offset these problems to see if they can figure out, particularly the carbonated beverages, how they can overcome these problems. But taste, once again, is impacted. So as people are developing alcohol that's going to be suitable for cons- consumption, 
at least in microgravity, they have to think about that because it won't taste exactly the same as it does here on the surface of Earth. So the people, the people who are going on Axiom 3, um, all of which, uh, well, at least the customers uh, would have paid a very substantial amount of money to have an enjoyable experience. I mean, to the best of your knowledge, will they be allowed to taste the champagne in space or does that still fall under those rules you mentioned? I don't believe anybody's going to be tasting this, but with the advent of commercial space, more and more of these private players, it's inevitable. You know, Axiom with their space station plans have planned for bars in space. Back at the first first all private mission, the um, um, uh, um, and I'm blanking right now, and one of my former board members was on the mission uh, back a couple of years ago in September. You know, they were thinking about having a toast, but since the um, mission was to help support St. Jude's Research Hospital, they thought since it was trying to raise money for children's cancer research, maybe they didn't want to distract everybody with drinking alcohol in space. So it's inevitable. And I don't think anybody's going to be consuming any of the champagne in the next mission, but this is inevitable. Now, now that you're having private missions and you don't have all the rules that NASA and other space agencies have, people, when they're spending, as you mentioned, millions of dollars to go into space, they're going to want to drink. And so the, the, the official line you're saying is if you're on any sort of government-connected mission in any country right now, so I guess the human spaceflight countries, basically, um, Russia, United States, um, China, and then sort of emerging India, Japan, it's it's prohibited everywhere. You know, I'm not sure about China. I suspect it is in China as well, but... Certainly everybody included in the International Space Station partnership, it's officially prohibited. But some countries, it's more like, yeah, we're not supposed to, we're not supposed to drink, wink, wink. And so, you know, Russia, it's less stringent. They consider it actually, frankly, healthy for the astronauts to be our cosmonauts to be drinking in space to relieve some of the stress. France, it's always been a, an area of contention as well, since it's such a strong part of French culture. And so pretty much the U.S. has really leveraged the other partners to make sure that this is prohibited in space, officially. Yes. But coming back to sort of the example you mentioned of, of Buzz Aldrin celebrating mass by himself on the lunar surface, and and then, you know, as, as you do in a traditional mass, having some some wine. Do you know that, like, let's say if you were a very observant, if it was part of your religion and you were an observant astronaut, like, let's say you're Jewish and you want to celebrate a proper Shabbat, like, they, they, they would not allow you. They would still say, sorry, like, we know it's part of your religion, but you can't. Yeah, no, yes. You know, that, that's what they would say. Whether they actually, once again, whether they really strictly enforce that, I don't know. That's a good question. I did not cover whether any religious other than Buzz whether there has been any alcohol consumed in space beyond that that was related to a religious ceremony. Probably has, but I don't know I don't know that for sure. And so I suppose, I mean, stating probably the obvious, the, the reason people don't want, or the, the space agencies don't want or don't encourage the drinking, other than maybe the Russians to some extent, as you mentioned, is because it's, of course, it's a depressant, it's known to impair judgment. Um, I guess it's also a flammable, a flammable substance. I, I assume those are like, it's for all of the standard reasons. It's pretty much. Now, you'll get a couple answers. Obviously, you don't want your astronauts being inebriated in space. And that makes sense. I agree with that. We don't want our astronauts being inebriated in space. The other reason that they usually point to, though, isn't that. It's actually that the alcohol, you know, the fumes can impact the um, environmental control system. You know, basically it'll gunk up the 
filters or something like that. I don't know how much of that is valid. I think I think it's probably partially true. But once again, people have been drinking in space for decades and it hasn't created big problems. And the amount of amount of alcohol they've consumed has been so, so little. I have not heard of anybody getting inebriated in space. And a lot of people I've spoken to astronauts and some astronauts that I would consider very, very, I wouldn't say conservative, but I would have thought that they would be opposed to alcohol in space, but they're not because they mentioned as long as you manage it, in some cases, you know, sleep medications that are approved for astronauts can have a much larger impact on human physiology than the small amount of alcohol people have been drinking. And so we think we all know that there are many sleep medications that can have a dramatically different impact on different people depending on their body mass and other physiological um, aspects, you know, which vary from person to person. I know somebody, a friend of mine who works as a professional in space medicine, and she's a physician. And before a flight, she took one of them. I can't one of, remember. I can't remember one. One of the main name brand sleep medications, and it had a really bad impact to the fact to the point where she arrived at her destination. She gave her talk. Woke up the next morning, didn't recall any of it. She literally gone through the whole day, given a presentation, had basically spoken to dozens of people and had no recollection from the point that she took sleep medication on her on the plane. And so, so by the way, I guess by virtue and definition of everything we've discussed so far, that to our knowledge, there haven't been any sort of controlled studies about the impact of alcohol in sustained microgravity. But do, has there been like maybe even shorter studies? Like, do, do we know anything about like how alcohol, you know how they're saying sometimes, or some people are saying, I don't even know whether it's true that alcohol, if you drink while you're flying on an aircraft that has sort of like a stronger effect on you. Is there something that we have studied with respect to the impact, the physiological impact of alcohol in sustained microgravity? No, not officially, not in space, because once again, once you have a, a study, you're acknowledging there's drinking in space. And so this is a big issue. And I think hopefully now that we have commercial flights going, we can do some of these real studies because you know, when you assume people are going to drink in space, it's a valid thing to be able to try to understand human physiology. We know it doesn't kill you, and we know it doesn't have a dramatically different impact, at least for small amounts, because people have been drinking in space for a long time. But we don't have any real studies to show how humans metabolize alcohol in space, except for all just analog, yeah, not analog, <laughs> anecdotal tales. You know, you know, they've been they've been high altitude studies here on Earth, but the high altitude studies here on Earth really I don't think are good analogs for space because it's a completely different environment. Yeah, fair enough. So when we're talking about the sort of developing commercial space industry, specifically the, you know, whatever you want to call it, uh, space space tourism. I know some of the, the people don't like uh, for it to be called space tourism. They say we're private space explorers. And I, I sort of sympathize with that as well, depending on the mission. But so in terms of rules, do you know whether that's then like, let's say if you go, if you do what they did for Inspiration4, right? So you're not even docking at the ISS, right? You're not kind of... Yeah, that's at Inspiration4. Why have blanked on the name? I don't know. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Inspiration for led by Jared Isaac Mann. That's like, like you mentioned, the mission that was done to benefit uh, St. Jude's Hospital. So that's, you know, a fully private mission in the sense that they're not using any government facilities in space. They're not talking at the ISS. Well, I said, they, there was no rule against it. I mentioned earlier, I just blanked on the name for some reason. You know, they were considering doing a toast up in space, but decided not to because of just because of St. Jude's. They did, however, bring up, I believe it was 70 pounds of hops, which were then sold to Sam Adams in here in the United States beer. to make beer out of it. Yeah, we'll talk, we'll talk
talk about that. Yeah. That is a, sorry, interesting business as well. What I call like space derived drinks or something like that. We'll, we'll definitely talk about that as well. But so just to confirm, so there's basically if you're running a private mission, I, I was just just asking because who knows? Maybe there would have been some FAA or some other rule that it doesn't matter if it's private, you're still not allowed to do it. But from what you're saying, you would be allowed to to drink if it was a fully private yeah, mission. No, I believe so. It's just you know right now they're still trying. You know, optics is still a concern. You know, they want to keep this whole momentum going. They don't want to. You know, too early in the process, I assume they don't want to push it too far, particularly when it's really dangerous. Now, when you're up on a SpaceX craft, it's pretty much all automated. You know, there's some human interaction with it, but it's pretty much being run by the computer. So even if you had a little bit to drink, it's not going to impact anything. I, I know because of my, my venture fund were seed investors in space perspective. People don't know this is a company that's doing sort of a space tourism with stratospheric balloons. You don't technically go to space, but you're going to near space. And one of, one of the points they very often mention in their marketing materials is this is a very nice, comfortable sort of lounge style capsule, which has a not only an onboard bathroom, but it also has an onboard bar, and uh, which, which is clearly not something that's present in uh, any other space capsule, at least to my knowledge. But maybe, um, Chris, have you heard anything about the upcoming space stations, like you know Axiom Station and things like that? Is anybody thinking about having an onboard bar? I believe Axiom is planning on sending having a bar on you know at least one of their future ones. I think most of them are thinking of that. You know, not all, but I believe I, I recall looking at some of the earlier Axiom designs, and they included bars. And as I said, Axiom partner, you know, Axiom um, partnered with um, Maison Mom, so they're very interested in this and having Champagne up on their space stations. I actually was at the formal announcement of this partnership at the Paris Observatory back in the fall, you know, during at, at, at IAC. And, you know, you could tell that Axiom was very motivated to be able to enable the sort of um, research and the ability to have champagne or other drinks in space. Hey, fellow space enthusiasts. This is just a quick 30-second reminder that I just released my introductory space economy book called To Infinity in English. It provides a non-technical introduction to the space sector, covering key trends, key space businesses, humanity's potential future in space, and how you can get involved. All of this is based on my daily experience as a space venture investor and also as a university lecturer on space entrepreneurship. The book is about 250 pages long and you can get the Kindle version for about 10 bucks. You can find it on Amazon or you can download a free sample at spacebusiness.substack.com. The link is also in the episode notes. Now back to today's episode. Besides Maison Moom and um, you mentioned one of the American beer companies, I forget which one. What Have there been other sort of uh, interesting examples of, it's obviously the liquor industry is a very big industry on earth. Have there been other interesting examples, anecdotes you want to mention of terrestrial liquor companies getting interested in space and doing interesting things? Oh, there are a lot of them. You know, one of the most well-known ones is Ardbeg, the Scottish whiskey company. They sent up the, they sent up the first whiskey aging experiment in space back in 2011, came back down in 2014. Um, and so they had a ground sample, a test sample that remained here on Earth, and then the other samples in space. And now they had to make, it wasn't like they sent barrels up into space. They had these little test mix sticks 
basically with shavings of the oak barrels and see, you know, we're able to see how it aged in space. Now, they only had two weeks to plan for this because they were given the opportunity, but only two weeks to be able to put this plan together. So it was probably flawed, but it got them a lot of PR. And the space flown samples tasted quite a bit different and not for the better. You know, I, some of the reports said it had a kind of rubbery, fishy taste to it, which are not the qualities you usually like, like in scotch. But it's probably because of the handling. They only had two weeks to plan. It stayed up in space for a lot longer than it was intended to because it was a problem with the SpaceX launch in, in between. And they probably didn't have time to take into account all the extreme shaking and other extreme environments it would have to go through. So hopefully space, not SpaceX, hopefully Ardbeg will be able to send up another mission. But um, Suntor, the Japanese whiskey company, also sent up two whiskey aging experiments, one of which is still up there, but they've been very closed-lipped about the results. So they were trying to see if aging and microgravity actually mellowed the product more than here being here on Earth. So it'll be interesting to see if Suntory comes back with a report at some point. But after, actually after, just as the book was being published, a group in France sent up 12 bottles of Bordeaux to see how Bordeaux or wine would age in space as well. Apparently there was a difference. It was, there was quite a bit of a difference between the terrestrial wine and the the wine that was aged in space. I mean, not tremendous, but it was definitely a difference. So a lot of companies are looking at that aspect, whether they can actually benefit from the space environment, you know, by aging. Aging, or even, for instance, a company like Anheuser-Busch here in the United States sent up four barley experiments to ISS, trying to see, you know, what the impact of, you know, whether they could grow barley in space, what would be the impact on the barley, and whether they could use that space environment to create something completely unique in their beer production. Because they announced back in 2017 they wanted to be the first beer manufacturer on Mars. They kind of dropped that goal now, but they still conducted these very important experiments. And that's not just important for beer in space or whiskey in space. When companies like Anheuser-Busch invest in barley in space, that's investing in space agriculture, which is one of the most important technologies, innovations required for sustainability in space. Yes, absolutely. And by the way, just to add on, on one thing you were saying, that um, the, the, the French company with the um, Bordeaux, that was uh, Space Cargo Unlimited. Uh, actually, um, their founder, Nicolas Gomes, he was um, on an earlier yep. episode of this podcast, not specifically talking about Nicholas. wine, but yes. <laughs> so that was very interesting. Of course, the other interesting aspect there is, and I don't know to what extent the, the other companies try to replicate that. Nicolas but certainly his plan was to then auction off some of these bottles um, for quite substantial amounts of money. Yeah, one of them, I believe, for a million dollars. Yep, there are the two collector these items. Already, and they were already high-priced bottles. I mean, I think the bottles before they went into space were each bottle like worth five or six thousand dollars. So they weren't they weren't inexpensive bottles of Bordeaux in the first place. But now that they've been in space, you know, that's that there are actually a lot of companies and people have been talking to who want to take advantage of that because they see this as an advantage, you know, an opportunity, you know, to try to manufacture alcohol in space to really grab that high-end alcohol market. So how many times, you know, if you have the first whiskey or moonshine produced on the moon, how much would somebody here on Earth pay for that? And so there are a number of companies right now who are actually trying to get into that business model, see if they can actually make money on the high-end alcohol production market where they sell sell very rare space-produced or space-flown alcohol, you know, for a million dollars plus. I mean, so, so somebody really has got to do moonshine on the moon. I mean, that's just too obvious. <laughs> 
Well, and that's that one of the guy who's talking about it wants to do just that, produce moonshine on the moon. So besides um besides Nicolas' very highly prized auctioned um bottles of Bordeaux, to your knowledge, is there if one of us just wanted to buy some sort of space produced alcohol, is are we actually able to do that? Space produced, there have not been anybody, as far as I know, that we have, you know, so I mean we have produced alcohol based on ingredients that are in the space like barley or yeast or hops. Yeah, sorry, that's what uh, I thought. Like. It's called space connected. Like maybe the ingredients went to space or the finished product went to space like it, uh, with the Bordeaux. Yeah, yeah and space, there space connected. Bottles, there have been other bottles that have been in space that have been auctioned. You know, that case, you know, during Apollo 11, there were three bottles of um, um, <laughs> not sherry, but um, of alcohol. I'm just blanking on. I'm just. I should have reviewed my own book before doing the call. It was auctioned little mini bottles, and one of them was auctioned by Jim Lovell. I believe it was seventeen thousand dollars several years ago. Yeah, which actually not bad price. You got you know the bottle, one of you know three bottles go around the moon, plus say you know a certificate of authenticity signed by Jim Lovell. So coming now to actually space produced alcohol, because I guess the, the implicit question there is like, you know, if everything goes well and we start settling places like the moon or or even further away like Mars, right? It's it probably uh, beyond a certain point, it, it's obviously not going to be very efficient to just bring along alcohol from Earth. Yeah. What are the thoughts of locally producing alcohol? Yeah, no, that's, and that's important. You know, if, you know, once we have sustainability in space, People want to have, you know, bars or something in space or have just regular alcohol when they're living in various space environments. Yeah, it won't be practical to send it all from Earth. So they'll have to figure out whether they can manufacture it in space. And one of the most important things there is agriculture. So they have to figure out how to, you know, how to produce plants to such an extent, just, you know, sufficiently to be able to not only generate enough food to eat, but be able to justify actually using some of that biomass to create alcohol. And so it's all connected. And so but in space, we might actually use um, seed products, feed products that we don't here on Earth. We only use a small number of them here on Earth because they work very well, whether it be barley or rice or sugarcane or potatoes etc. But we can use any number of, um, you know, any number of types of biomass, pretty much anything you can extract sugar from. So you might want to use things that we would not be eating, like the waste product, algae, things like that. And with that, they might actually be able to create entirely new classes of alcohol using different feedstock, but also when you mix that into the entirely different environment. So how is alcohol going to be produced in, in different gravity? Will fermentation and distillation work the same way or in one-third gravity of Mars? You know, will it taste different? Will it also absorb absorb some of the, well, say, terroir or Mars war <laughs> on Mars? You know, the certain taste, whether it be of the soil indigenous to Mars or just the environment that is being manufactured. In. So a lot of different factors, you know, in atmospheric pressure as well. You know, when you put these all together, you might create entirely new classes of alcohol that can only be produced on Mars or only produced on the moon or only produced in microgravity. And think about how much those will be sold for on Earth. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense to me because I mean, for, for a little I know about sort of the history on Earth. It seems like people around the Earth are basically have come up with alcohol and just so to say they fermented whatever they found they could ferment so it seems like we would do the same thing in space 
Oh, yeah. You know, they, they get by it. And prisons say on Biosphere 2, the original um, crew on Biosphere 2, also, you know, they didn't have any alcohol. So they actually made, did some experiment and they eventually made some banana wine. Apparently it tastes like crap, but it still was satisfying to be able to make your own wine in Biosphere 2. It, it seems there's really some interesting room for creativity and uh, maybe even for like, you know, people like synthetic biologists who get involved in all of this in space. Well, yeah, no, and I, I certainly spoke to a lot of synthetic biologists about this as well. And so you never know as all these processes are developing, you know, may not having the feedstock or the alcohol may not be as big a problem as you may think, depending on if you're using synthetic biology. And, you know, you know, you might be able, they might be able to solve all these issues, meaning over time, we may not have a problem feeding the crew or having enough feedstock for whatever indigenous alcohol they may want to produce. And I apologize, I'm getting, I've been very raspy during this interview. No so. worries. And I guess there's sort of... Um... I don't know, maybe I'm just going off the rails here. There's some sort of interesting angle here as well in terms of justifying this that, I mean, some of the produced, especially if we do something like ethanol, you'd basically use it as a propellant as well. Well, that is true. There are multiple uses for alcohol. You don't just drink it. So, you know, when you think about it in these terms, you know, how can you use this? Yeah, you know, provide some responsible way of consuming alcohol, but, you know, use this also to justify that you need to be able to perfect this process for other systems as well. And so, you know, I, I think there are plenty of reasons why you can justify the manufacturing of alcohol in space and not just to get, you know, not just for consumption. So it seems like now is really, you know, given the the state of development of the commercial space sector and again, specifically the space tourism industry, it seems like it's the right time to start thinking about all of this in, in more seriousness, like the regulatory angle and the consumption angle, the production angle. From where we stand today and with, with your knowledge, which is probably more than, than anyone else on this topic, where do you see the sort of near-term future, near and medium-term future for alcohol in space? What are some of the interesting aspects you're watching? Well, you know, I mean, I think once again, it's all very much connected to this commercial space industry, as we have more companies like Axiom and others paying for completely private missions. And as we really start building private space stations, this will be part of it because they are building it into it. And that's why Maison Mon specifically and, and the Vostok beer and others have been trying to create space specific products to be able to really take advantage of this new environment. Oh, obviously, they want to make money on it directly, but also being able to use that as marketing as well, being, you know, being, for instance, the exclusive champagne producer for, you know, for instance, the Axiom space station of the future, that would be quite an accolade for Maison Lung. And they'd be able to make a lot more money here on Earth because of just that accomplishment. And so I think this is going to grow. I think more and more companies are looking at this. It's still not inexpensive, but I we're trying to bring more and more of the players together to look at all the problems, you know, the physiological issues, the challenges, the ethical issues, and responsible ways to be able to advance this. So, you know, and looking at some historical examples, like, for instance, in my book, I mentioned the example of you know, whereas the U.S. Navy has almost it's almost completely, um, it's not completely prohibition, but almost. Whereas the French Navy, not surprisingly, they will have bars on their ship, but they restrict it very, you know, they have a very effective way of restricting it, one drink per day. And they keep track of it. And this could be done in space as well to monitor 
alcohol consumption, you know, much more closely than people do here on Earth. So I think there are responsible ways of doing it. And I think it's actually when you're going to be away from Earth for so long, living in a foreign environment, completely alien, so to speak, from living here on Earth, these little parts of Earth, these little these ways of relieving the tension, uh, building up camaraderie, having ceremonies are very important. And I think a lot of people, a lot of the manufacturers here on Earth, not just alcohol producers, but others are beginning to see this. And that's why a lot of them investing in space-related uh, projects. Yeah, it's interesting you, you you brought up the example of the navies there. Um, I guess this is another parallel to our recent episode on sex in space. There we started talking about um, submarines, right? Submarines as an example of an extremely confined, life-threatening environment on Earth. And I guess it'd be interesting to see and look what, uh, what the rules are on various nations' submarines with regard to alcohol consumption. I can't tell you what all the different rules are on submarines around the world. It would be an interesting area of study because, you know, they're very similar to space, but it's, you know, obviously a much more dangerous environment as well than surface ship. So that, that would be an interesting area to look at each country and how they deal with that. Because obviously on surface ships, it's much more straightforward, but still complex. But, you know. Submarines are very, very dangerous, even the best of circumstances. And so, who knows? Yeah, yeah, it's like surface ship. Like you know, you go off the you go off the rails. Then I mean, maybe literally you go off the rails, but you don't sort of endanger the entire vessel, right? Or the submarine, if somebody goes off the rails, it might be very dangerous. That's I think where the comparison came from. But I just realized on speaking of space tourism, I totally forgot to ask you. Um, have you heard anything about? So we've been talking orbital space tourism, and for good reason, right? Um, but on those suborbital flights, if somebody just wanted to, like you know, on the sort of like the highest point of a new Shepard mission just have a quick toast? Would I assume that would theoretically be allowed? Or have you heard anything yeah, about it's that? Yeah, impossible. And I've heard a number of people talking about it. It hasn't happened to my knowledge. Um, I'm trying to think back if I'm wrong. I, I don't think I recall seeing anybody doing it, but I've certainly spoken to a number of people on that. And so I think that's fairly inevitable as well. You know, they just have to also understand they'll have to clean up the um, space capsule quite a bit after. Yeah, since it's hard to maintain, you know, keep track of, you know, champagne at least is going to go all over the place if you open it up in that environment. And that's, and that's once again, that's why that's one of the things that Maison Momo also created. They created a special bottle to prevent it from spraying everywhere. They have a little lid over the top to prevent it spraying. And so they can control it coming out of the bottle. Yeah, no, I guess you need a special... Um of glass as well right to to drink it in microgravity which is yet another opportunity something like a brand like a baccarat or somebody could get involved yeah no well maison mom also created a special glass so that people can drink their um product appropriately they want to enhance the quote conviviality of drinking in space but there are also several companies that have been looking at microgravity glassware i have actually don't have it in front of me right now but a um microgravity um cocktail glass and a company has created a microgravity scotch glass as well. Yeah, using basically you fill it from the bottom and use little grooves so the, the liquid comes up to the groove so you can still drink it like you drink, you know, a beverage here on Earth, except it's not filled to the top. It's just using the physics, the you know, the fluid physics to come up the surface on the sides and then you sip it that way. So that's the um, sort of the, 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 the stemware, so to say, and um, producing space with drinks. I mean, since this is a space business podcast, any other sort of like alcohol and space related business opportunities that spring to your mind? Well, I think, you know, there should be actually like, for instance, distillation in space. Say, obviously, you know, it comes with some issues, flames and everything in space, but that would be useful for many industries. 
you know, so pharmaceuticals, other in industry, you know, partnering with alcohol companies to figure out if you can do this. You know, so there's cross-pollinization. As I mentioned, you know, it's great when you can find companies that are investing where there's crossover technology. This is one of my favorite aspects. Like the Budweiser, Anheuser-Busch example, they were investing in space space agriculture. Well, cocktail glasses like that, they're also in based in, in, in investing in fluid dynamics that are important for other systems as well. What can you find that, you know, you have overlapping technologies for space, but also here on Earth as well? So I think there are a lot of those coming up soon. Um, you know, as I mentioned, the agriculture aspects are very obvious. And the more companies that are looking at that, whether they're alcohol-based, food production, agriculture, very important. So if we can find more ways to find private investment in these critical technologies that have many overlapping uh, needs or products like food, but even for food agriculture, you have many products beyond food, not just alcohol. You can manufacture things, you know, with agricultural products. And so it's when you can find these overlaps. And I think there are also, and this is why there are venture capitalists now investing in Mars-related technology, because they realize it's not you're not investing in the entire mission, whereas it's probably, you know, probably not going to make a profit anytime soon if you're paying for a Mars mission. But all these innovations required for sustainability in space could have a very have a direct impact for quality of life here on Earth and create markets here on Earth. And so that's why I'm really interested in with these alcohol in space and a lot of other products, finding these overlaps, you know, for sustainability in space, but also creating markets here on Earth. I 100% agree with you there. It's, you sometimes call it the other dual use, right? Not not dual use civil military, but dual use sort of like use in space, but also use in Earth. And we've invested, for example, in a French company, Interstellar Lab, which you might know, which are doing very advanced greenhouses, which you could ultimately use on Mars, but you can use them on the on, on Earth in the meantime. But Chris, as we're winding down here on, on the episode, I um, just want to ask you a couple of closing questions. By the way, what is your favorite drink? I'm kind of in between, you know, kind of a big, bold red wine or scotch. Right. Interestingly, and with Ardbeg, Kind of funny because I like big, smoky, peaty whiskeys. And Ardbeg was my favorite whiskey before I had I had any idea that they had any space connection. It was just hap happy coincidence. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I guess sort of a related question is, so if everything goes well, right, and humanity goes and settles in places like the moon and Mars and so forth, you know, I, I at least, I don't know what you think, but I think then we we would need to come up with drinks which are sort of somehow connected to those places, right? Like on Earth, we have drinks which are connected to places, right? Like, like you know, I'm partly Brazilian, and like Brazil is like Capirinha, right, as an example, right? Do you have any ideas for like moon drinks? I guess we all talked about moonshine, that's kind of funny, but any other ideas for like moon or Mars related drinks which could be candidates for those locations. You mean for, you know, location related rather than what you're using to make it? Yes. Yeah, I've always thought it would be kind of cool to have a drink uh, called Olympus Mons, you know, something based on the, you know, based on the volcano, something smoky and bold, you know, a yeah. cocktail. Um, you know, I think, you know, I mean, there are many geological features on Mars, which I think lend themselves to drink names. And so I, I think you could have a lot of fun with that. And, We've been trying on and off to launch this new organization called the Space Drinks Association to bring all the different players together. And mm -hmm. that was one of the things we wanted to do, just something fun, have a drink naming competition, you know, for something space related, but something that people actually want to drink rather than just some cutesy drink that happens to have Mars in the title. Yeah, for sure. I mean, that sounds like a good idea. And I'm certainly um, on board with that if you guys are going to go ahead with the Space Drinks Association. So final question in our podcast is always about science fiction and usually, you know, what some of your favorite science fiction 
fiction is, whether it's books or TV shows or movies. But because of the topic, you know, be fun also if you can think of examples to tie it back, of course, to drinking and alcohol in science fiction works. Well, of course, if anybody who watches science fiction knows that alcohol isn't exactly rare in science fiction. And so whether it's television or film, you know, Star Trek, even on Next Generation, they have simple, but they're often drowning real drinks as well. You have Romulan Ale and all that. So a lot of alcohol, particularly in the newer Star Treks. You know, Star Wars, of course, Cantina Bar, you know, the Battlestar Galactica, there was actually quite a bit of consumption of alcohol there. Oh, you know, yeah. even things like in... Um, you know, literature, you know, whether it be um, Jules Verne, you know, in his lunar mission, you know, they were bringing grapevine vines to grow on the moon, you know, in Martian Chronicles, they, you know, they, there was wine in that as well. So most of them, you know, most of the famous science fiction feature alcohol, or at least the desire to have some alcohol if they didn't have it in the first place in space, because it's really just part of human culture. I've been consuming alcohol, manufacturing it since before records were, you know, started. And so it's not exactly going to disappear the moment we go into space. And frankly, that ship has sailed because we've been drinking, you know, for decades in space. And so um, I think this is something that just science fiction writers assume is going to happen. And so it's not some far out idea. They just know it's part of human culture, human, you know, whether it's a good thing or a bad thing, it has been part of human culture since the beginning, and it's not going to stop anytime well, soon. By the way, on, on the science fiction, you mentioned Star Trek. Do, do you do do we have any idea what Klingon blood wine is? Well, I'm assuming blood is a portion of it. However, did they create the alcoholic product out of the blood itself? Did they create, did they create, you know, extract the sugars from the blood and create alcohol from, from whatever it's made out of? You know, I don't know. I don't, did they ever mention what kind of blood it is? That is why, that's why I'm asking. I, I mean, they clearly consume it all of the time and in copious quantities, but I don't think I'm not yeah. a huge Star Trek, Star Trek fan and watch it. I don't think they ever actually explain it, but it's an interesting yeah, one. Yeah, I think there's probably some. <laughs> Some really um, enthusiastic Star Trek fans who will email us and tell us, of course, it's made out of this. <laughs> it might be another business opportunity to to come up with the blood wine on Earth, probably paying some royalties to uh, the Roddenberries. Absolutely. Chris. Thank you so much. We'll be watching this field. Um, I mean, as you gather, I'm also, well, by virtue of this episode and the recent episode on sex and space, I I very strongly believe anything that's a strong part of human culture. If you want to go to space, we have to extend it into space. So thank you very much for, for writing your book. And again, we're, we'll link to your book in the in the episode notes and um, and, and we'll be watching this um, this segment of space. Thank you. And I hope people will also watch out. There's be a, there'll be a documentary version of Alcohol in Space coming out this okay. fall. So hopefully it'll be on streaming services sometime late this year, early next year. Terrific. Chris, thanks. Thanks a lot. Thanks for having me. Well, that's it for another nominal episode of the Space Business Podcast. If you like this podcast, please consider giving it a five-star rating on your favorite podcast platform, such as iTunes. You can follow us on Twitter at podcast underscore space. Also consider supporting us at www.patreon.com forward slash space business podcast if the podcast got you interested in learning more about the business opportunities in the space economy check out my new online course on space entrepreneurship on udemy.com the link is in the episode description lastly if you have any feedback including ideas for guests and that may include yourself if you have an exciting space story to tell or interested in being a sponsor drop us an email at spacebusinesspodcast at gmail.com I look forward to seeing you for the next episode.